0: Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and as you're turning, I stand before you licensed by this presbytery to preach the gospel, and so I thank you for your prayers to that end, and I'll remind you that you are not free from praying for me, but you've only begun, so please continue to do so, and I'd like to thank, express my gratitude to Pastors McDonald, McWilliams, and to Alan Montgomery for helping prepare me for examination. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. Let me pray for us before we read. Gracious God, this is a familiar passage to us, and we give you thanks for that, that you have taught us your word throughout our lives But for that same reason, Lord, we are in danger of being complacent to what is familiar. We ask that this would not be so tonight, but may we be illumined by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus to behold his glory in this passage. Make it so for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 1, verse 11. Let us now give attention to God's infallible word. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? Again, this is a very familiar passage to many of us, particularly if you came from a non reformed background. Surely this passage played a pivotal role in you coming to a more reformed understanding of Christianity. It shows us the sovereign free grace of God from eternity past. And perhaps you have used this passage in having conversation with a non-reformed friend, someone who believes in the free will of man, to freely ascertain the, the good news of the Lord Jesus, and you use this passage to show this person in love the absurdity of such a position. Perhaps you read about predestination, particularly in this passage, and you think that it is nonsense, that the logical conclusion of such a doctrine would mean that actions have no meaning, that we are robots. And it is impossible to you at this point to understand that predestination yields praise, reverence, and admiration of God, humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all who sincerely obey the gospel as it was intended to be. Ephesians 1 is surely one of the high points of the New Testament, rivaled perhaps only by Romans chapter 8. In this passage, our gaze is lifted above and beyond our present circumstances to show the sweeping breadth of God's grace from eternity past to eternity future and everything in between. And for you native Floridians, there's something called a mountain. It's like a hill, but it's bigger. It's something you can climb and and see great things from a great height, something above sea level. (laughs) Paul, as it were, has taken us up the mountain. He's taken us very high up, showing us the vast Sweeping vistas of God's grace. And we can see all the way to the left, eternity past, Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Moving to the right, our union with him in time by the gift of faith and then future glory that is to come. We are very familiar with such things. My in-laws live in Lake Placid. They live on the lake there. They have beautiful views of the sunset every, every evening. They look over a a park that will never be built on. It's a natural preserve. Lots of wildlife, gators and whatnot. Beautiful views that they have access to every day. And I mentioned at one point how how beautiful the sunset was to my mother-in-law, and she remarked that you do get used to it. Even such things that you are familiar with, you get used to. Such as our, our danger, as I mentioned, but with God's help, our familiarity with such things will not lead to apathy. May God make it so at this point in Paul 's doxology, he is speaking of the assurance of the believer's heavenly inheritance. This inheritance is something we presently possess, and the full possession of it is to come in the future. the full inheritance of our, the, the full possession of our heavenly inheritance. So we see first of all we were predestined unto this inheritance. Verse 11, Paul starts with our personal history. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. This shows us when the inheritance became ours, when we obtained it, completed action, something that's already taken place, something we already have. It shows our involvement in getting the inheritance. We were passive. We didn't strive to get it. God gave it freely, and we received it by the gift of faith. It was freely given by God, and we received it merely by God's free grace and love. We have already obtained it, and we were passive in obtaining it. That's all well and good, but what is the inheritance? What is this that we have already obtained? Well, even already in this chapter we can see. Verse 3, every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Verse 5, the adoption as sons. Our bold access to the throne of grace because of the merits of Christ Jesus, knowing God as Father instead of as Judge, we are pitied, protected, and provided for, and chastened by God as a loving Heavenly Father. Verse 7, we have redemption through Christ's blood, the full and free forgiveness of sins. In verse 9, we see that history's meaning, the revelation of the mystery in Christ, all history has meaning in the Lord Jesus and for His glory Elsewhere, throughout Scripture, we see that the inheritance involves resurrection from the dead. Uh, Ephesians 2.6, we have been resurrected. It, it, that is also a past event, culminating in the resurrection of the body in the future. We are presently members of Christ's kingdom, which he established in his first coming. We've been redeemed out of darkness into God's marvelous light. We are members of the new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new things have come. Which means we are also members of new heavens and new earth presently. Though we still exist in this present evil age. And there's more, of course, to this inheritance. More aspects of it. But it's something we have already obtained. Keep in mind, all this and more is ours in Christ. It is ours in this age by faith and it is ours in the age to come by sight. All these things God has planned for us. Look at the rest of verse 11. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Again, God is active here. We are passive. God elects. We do not choose to be elected. The inheritance here in view originates in God's electing grace. Without election, there's no gospel, without election, there's no inheritance. And we see in the rest of this verse that God's electing purposes have meaning now and forever. They do not merely suspend in the air. It is by God's eternal purpose that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things means all things. God's decree does not make history a game. It doesn't turn us into robots or negate secondary causation. It does not make life meaningless. God's decree is what gives meaning to everything. It's turned absolutely upside down. All things includes you. It includes everything you're going through even at this present moment. Turn with me to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 11. Another familiar passage, perhaps, but one of very great comfort. Verse 8 Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God does not react to history. He he causes all history to fall out in its entirety and in all its parts, according to his eternal purpose. You may ask, does this include even the fall of man? Does it include the death of Christ? Does it include even whatever I'm going through right now? And the answer is unqualifiedly yes. There is nothing that happens in history that was not willed by God. If it happens in history, it was willed by God. But I would remind you that you would not want to have it any other way. Your life is ordained and controlled by an all-knowing and all-wise God. If it were otherwise, life would be meaningless. Your life and everything happening to you have meaning only because of God's all-encompassing eternal purpose, not in spite of it. So there is a specific goal to God's eternal purpose, controlling history, and actually bringing it to pass. Verse 12, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So Paul has in view here that Believing Jews were the first ones to hope in Christ, and so he's talking to believing Gentiles who believed subsequently. The specific goal of God's eternal purpose in controlling history and actually bringing it to pass is for the praise of His glory. That is the meaning of all things. All things exist for God's glory, and that is the key in discussing predestination. There is nothing that is arbitrary. There is nothing meaningless. There is nothing outside God's control. There is nothing from chance or contingency. All things have been ordained by God for his glory. This is something, of course, we will never fully understand, even in the age to come when we are glorified, but we can rest knowing that God understands these things. Nothing is mysterious to him. Nothing is incomprehensible to him. All he ordains is right, and all he ordains he understands, even if we do not So that, then, is the predestination of the inheritance. Secondly, we see the possession of the inheritance in verses 13 to 14. Verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. First they heard, then they believed, then they were sealed. Yet it's important not to introduce too much distinction among these things to say that there is a great amount of time between hearing and believing and then being sealed. Hearing the gospel, believing it by the gift of faith, being sealed by the Spirit are all aspects of one event. These are distinct from one another, but they're inseparable, and they happen at the same time for those who trust in Christ. One translation I came across of this verse renders the the meaning of seal in, in a very um, very helpful way. It says, When you believed, you were marked with the owner's seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And that notion of owner's seal gets across what a seal is. A seal is a means of identification. It is a mark of ownership. It's like when you get a hot brand and you put it on cattle, showing that the cattle belongs to you forever. This was also done to slaves in, in ancient times. Revelation 7 has the language of sealing those who belong to God. The servants of God have marks on their foreheads. And so we see here that the the sealing is the Spirit himself upon our hearts. In essence, it means that we are owned by God. We are his precious possession. And he has given us God the Holy Spirit himself as that personal mark of ownership. And so that that is the essence of the covenant of grace, isn't it? That there is ownership. We are owned by God and we have covenantal ownership of God as well. I'll turn with me to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 verses 15 and 16. This gets at, at the Godward direction that God owns his people. Verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God has given us his spirit, reminding us that we belong to him, and he will never forget us. Turn with me to Psalm 73. This goes truly the other direction, from man to God. Psalm 73, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The covenant originates in God's electing purposes, and God takes initiative to make us his own. And for that reason, God God is owned by us as a, as a loving Heavenly Father. So we are sealed by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of promise. He is the mark upon us that we belong to God. He is the Spirit of promise, Ezekiel 36 and 37. God promises to pour out his Spirit upon us, to put the Spirit in our hearts that we May be enabled to keep God's law. He will put his spirit within us. Uh, And especially Joel chapter 2. God promises that in the last days, he will pour out his spirit upon the church. And that is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 in Peter's Pentecost sermon. The resurrected Lord Jesus, who then becomes the life-giving spirit in his resurrection from the dead. The Lord who is the spirit. Ascends on high, leads captivity captive, and gives gifts to men. And part of that gifting is the pouring out of his Spirit, his eternal presence with his people by his Spirit, poured out at Pentecost, indwelling the believer, making the believer a temple of the Holy Ghost. And that same Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So he is that that brand, that mark upon our hearts that we belong to God, testifying to us that these things are so. The Spirit is also a guarantee. Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And maybe you have a footnote next to guarantee. I have here down payment. Guaranteed down payment. My preference for translating this word is first installment. Down payment or first installment gets at the actual possession of the future inheritance right now. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Currently. Old things have passed away, new things have come. Philippians 3.20 We are currently members of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven while we live in this present evil age. A down payment is a payment in kind. It is the, it is the same kind as the other payment, payments that are to follow. If I owe you sheep and I give you one, I'm not going to give you chickens later. Sheep will beget more sheep to come It is a down payment in kind. A down payment obligates the contracting party to give further payments, and get, indeed to give the rest of the payment. In current or in modern-day usage, this down payment idea is communicated with an engagement ring. Man puts the ring on a, on his fiance's finger, indicating that there is more to come. There is more relationship to come. In fact, the the climax of that relationship, the, of which. The, the engagement ring is the down payment. So, who then redeems what? Who then possesses what in this in this verse? If you look at a, another footnote, I have here for until we acquire possession of it, I have or until God redeems His possession. So that that communicates two things. the the main The main text says until we acquire possession of it, and that's true. It indicates that. We have part of the future inheritance right now. We have a foretaste of it, a provisional giving of it in this age, the rest of which is to follow in the age to come, which we will surely get. But ask yourself, who is giving the down payment? Did we give a down payment to God, indicating that we would give more later? No, it is God who gave his Holy Spirit as the down payment. So God is the party who is obligated to give further payments. God gives his Holy Spirit now, in this present evil age, indicating that there is more inheritance to come. God will fully redeem his possession because we are chosen and precious in his sight, but he is obligated to give more inheritance in the age to come. And it's down payment in kind. The Holy Spirit is given to us, so that's not to say that we get the rest of the triune God in the age to come. It is to say that we get more of future glory, more of the age to come, more is coming when Christ returns. It is God who makes more payments. There is more payments of glorious inheritance still to come. Now children, let me, let me illustrate this way. If I have a, a bag of toys, or, or candy, or, or whatever it is you, you love and, and desire. If I have a bag of toys, and you understand that it is beyond your wildest imagination, all these beautiful things that I, that I have with me, and I give you one toy, that's your down payment. That is something from me to you indicating that I will give you the rest of this at a later date. So you personally, provisionally, have a payment from the bag of the glory yet to come. Then let's say that some time elapses and you invite me over to hang out with your parents' permission. And we're in your living room and we're having a good time, or I am anyway, and I see that you're, you're a little blue, you're a little down in the dumps. And I ask you what's wrong and you say to me, my friends have all these awesome toys but I have nothing to play with. And then I look over in the corner and I see there, there's the toy that I gave you a while ago and I, and I would think that you were crazy. You forgot about the, the down payment that I gave you. You forgot about the toy that I gave you to enjoy now as a provisional reminder that there is more to come. Can you appreciate that, that as faulty as that illustration is, can you appreciate that the Spirit, right now, God himself, is our present personal possession of future glory? Yet how many Christians are unaware of the working of the Spirit in our lives right now? Can you imagine a soldier in warfare who has been trained, who has been equipped with all the equipment he needs for, for battle, and he goes out and he forgets all his training? He forgets all the tools that he has to use to defeat the enemy. Can you imagine an athlete who's been trained by the, by the best trainers, the best coaches? He's been given all the best weightlifting secrets and tips and training, and then he gets out into the race and he forgets, and he doesn't realize that there's, there's Gatorade there to sustain him through the rest of the race. Can you imagine someone who forgets what they have? But doesn't that apply to all of us as well? We have the spirit. We have God himself, the seal upon our hearts of future glory and ownership by God. And we wonder why we still sin. We wonder why we still struggle in this present evil age. I know I'm painting with a broad brush, but that is to remind us that we have God himself indwelling our hearts, the first installment of future glory, reminding us of what is yet to come. We have tasted of the age to come because we are indwelt by the Spirit from the age to come. So the guarantee of our inheritance, if it's, a, if it's an inheritance of future glory, the new heavens and new earth, the resurrection body, is that to say that the guarantee of our inheritance is part of a resurrection body? That When, when you are united to Christ by the gift of faith, you have a resurrection arm, and the rest of you is the dead body of sin? No, with respect to the new heavens and new earth, is that to say that there's a plot of land that is from the age to come, that is a, it was a glorified, glorified plot of land. And in spite of what you think, it is not the state from which you came. No, the inheritance has to do with God himself. The inheritance and the guarantee of it is God himself. God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the one who raised us from the dead in the Lord Jesus Christ, who indwells us as his temple, who marks us as God's precious possession. He is the first installment of our glorious inheritance to come, and he is the actual foretaste right now of the glory of the age to come. So there is more to follow. It is a payment in kind. What we experience now in Christ will give way to the fullness of the age to come. Again, all to the praise of God's glory. And God's people said,